what's up, Geekscapists? Welcome to a brand new Geekscape episode. We are here in the Westwood One Studios, and we've got a pretty great episode for you. The filmmakers behind the brand new movie, Midnighters, are in the studio, and uh, they're going to be telling you all about the film that is currently uh, out right now. It, I thought it was going to be a horror movie. It is actually like a suspense, uh, kind of like a noirish suspense uh, film. And it does have some horrific stuff in it. So if you're a horror fan or a suspense fan or just a film fan on the eve or on the uh, other end of the Oscars, um, this is a pretty good episode for you guys. If this is your first Geekscape, we're going to be talking movies and video games, comics, pop culture stuff, but really focus today on filmmaking. I'm Jonathan London, your host, and I got to give... A huge shout out to everybody in the last week uh, who's left a review for the show or shared the show with their friends. We are on the new Omni platform. And even though we have that RSS feed and it's been our RSS feed for a very long time, every time we move to a new platform, as we recently did with Omni, um, I feel like we're moving the uh, watering hole a little bit and we shake some of you guys. Uh, some things get disconnected. Some things get reconnected. It always helps now that we're on a new platform for you to share the show. Uh, and last week we had a really great filmmaker friendly show as well. Um, if you guys are filmmakers, definitely go back and listen to uh, me talk to my good friend James Cotton about his very, very, very indie uh, Western that he pulled off. How do you pull off a Western on like an indie budget? That's crazy to me. Um, but he did it and that was a good conversation. So just go on the feed. There's tons of great stuff, including an episode with our good friend Doug Jones, who was in Shape of Water, which won Best Picture last night. So that's that's on the feed. Go, go on Omni and check out all the old episodes and share, 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 because it really helps our visibility now that we've moved the watering hole yet again. Um, and for sure, I want to just say a huge shout out to, again, every, anybody who's left a review, but I checked the numbers. I thought it was a small sample size. Now we've been on this platform for... Over two weeks, Silver Springs, Maryland. I don't know what's happening in Silver Spring, but that is by far the biggest concentration of listeners that the, I mean, that's what the, that's what the numbers are telling me that in Silver Spring, Maryland, there are a lot of listeners. I've yet to hear from anybody in Silver Spring. There are calls into the mayor's office about getting me a key to the city. Um, but so far, Silver Spring, Maryland is running away with it. I thought uh, LA did kind of close the distance a little bit. But it's not going to be enough. Silver Spring, Maryland is definitely the highest concentration of Geekscape listeners uh, that we've got. So I love you, Silver Spring. I'm not going to sing you a song this week. <laughs> okay, let's get down to business. We've got Allison Ramsey. Hello. We've got Julius, his brother. Hi. And uh, in the star of the movie, uh, can I say that? The star of the movie? I mean, there I are a couple of people in the film. But, um, Alex Esso, did I pronounce that right? That is right, yeah. Thank you. And you guys made this movie Midnighters. Correct. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the movie. Who You guys wrote it? Yes. Directed it? Yes. And started it. We got this. Uh, and so, Alston and I produced it ourselves. So you and... So the brothers produced it. Yeah. Yes. Alston wrote it. Julius directed it. I'm just trying to get this all right. straight because everybody's staring at me. Uh, <laughs> and I, usually when I talk, I like look around. I look off. <laughs> um, but here we are. Um, I watched the movie in lieu of the Academy Awards. I'm not a big Academy Awards person. Mm. I think it's a little, no offense, Academy Awards fans. There are a lot of movies that come out each year. <laughs> and you're going to give the award to one or two? It just feels a little bit prom king and queen. Mm -hmm. It just feels a little... Mm -hmm. um, 
Like you're getting know. high on your own supply. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there some of that? Like, I, I don't know what it is about the Oscars, but I, I skip them, mm-hmm. you know? And, mm-hmm. and yeah, there, I, I think there's a little bit of patting on the back. I think that's thing. why people love, love it when they make a mistake so much, like what happened last year with the Best Picture Award, <clears throat> because it's so funny to see all this money and time and, and frankly, pomp and pomp, it feels a little pretentious. And then, they just totally, um, can I say shit the bed or do we? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my, my, my favorite expression, by the way, no, shit the bed. <laughs> I, I, my, I think, yes, there is that where you have this entire ceremony, like big production built around applauding oneself. At what point is that appropriate? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like at what point? Once you cure cancer, sure. Yeah. I, I Why mean, don't we televise that ceremony? <laughs> well, for sure. For sure. If, if there was an award, I mean, when you look at things like, um, you know, and then you have to sit there and you have to argue like the power of fiction, and you have to argue the this, the way the fact that like fiction sometimes illuminates truths that 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 nonfiction doesn't illuminate, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, or the way that uh, that mass storytelling works in helping to shape a society or guide a society, right? The Oscars, I don't know what doesn't sit well with me. I think it, it all comes down to like the fact that you give one award per category and that is the one that has been kind of selected to be remembered mm-hmm. as a representation of hundreds mm-hmm. of submissions for that year. It just seems a little like right, weird. and then you get into the politics and that. And, you know, yeah, we absolutely love when they f up. And I mean, did you guys watch the Oscars? I uh, did not. No. Yeah, I think you're talking to three filmmakers, none of whom actually watched it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I also, you know, it's all a campaign too, where mm-hmm. people pay millions of dollars to influence the how many people are in the Academy that actually vote. I mean, it's a few thousand. Yeah. yeah, and so it's it's kind of a. It's just strange that, and I believe um, Harvey Weinstein, I think, sort of invented the modern, like media paying campaign oh, to well, win yeah, Oscars. Yeah, the, that big Merrimack streak that Weinstein. he had. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, he the late nineties, where it was like mm-hmm. uh, Shakespeare and love and all that yeah. stuff was like okay. Sure. Yeah. So if you don't have like a massive marketing budget for running an Oscar campaign, you can't win, and so that's also it rules out some really good films that. You know, sometimes they get nominated, but they just, you can't compete if you're not a big enough movie. Um, I thought a few years ago, the movie Whiplash. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, everyone kind of knew it got nominated, but they're like, well, it can't win. It, it didn't play in enough theaters. It didn't have a big enough box office. Um, but Which has nothing to do with the merits of the film on its own at all. No. You know, it's no. like, it just has everything to do with the ability for somebody to plunk <laughs> down money for a widescreen release. Yeah. Um, and then hire a good PR firm to press like a couple thousand insiders complete insiders right. to um, vote for you and the self-congratulation to me in it goes back to like the the Shakespearean love and uh, what was the the silent film the artist mm-hmm. and it was like hey how great is our craft <laughs> everything <laughs> seems to go very actor uh, congratulatory where it's like hey no offense to the actor in the room oh, <laughs> oh no no no, no. I, I, I got something to say about the Oscars the too game. so uh, but it's when you see things like that and then when you have a, a film that's actually pushing the limits of what a film can be I mean I'm biased because as an Austinite and as a huge Richard Linklater fan mm-hmm. like he can do no wrong. Do you hear me, Geekscapers? Get one thing through your head <laughs> in your morning drive or as I put you to sleep. He can do no wrong. But uh, you sit here with an actual experiment of a film like Boyhood, mm-hmm. shot over that 12-year period, yeah. 
and you're like, oh yeah, you are kind of pushing the definitions of what a film can be or what a production can be and what art can be. And we're going to give it to this guy because acting, you know? And yeah. I thought The Revenant was a better movie than Birdman. Mm-hmm. Birdman was a pretty damn impressive movie. I will give it to Birdman. It's got some really great stuff, but mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about a, like a, a movie you're probably not going to ever see the likes of again in, yeah. in Boyhood. It's like, mm-hmm. okay. Totally. Let's skip it. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, you look at last year when someone like, uh, you know, and I'm sorry to the La La Land fans out there, but Emma Stone winning over someone like Isabelle Huppert Mm -hmm. for Elle, arguably a far more challenging role to begin with. Uh, And not only that, but I mean, she has a, a 40 year career you know, of doing extremely difficult work that whole time. So it's really kind of like, are we giving awards for the best acting or the most acting? Right. Also, I mean, I was reading that the Oscars was started to make artists feel better about themselves. Like the studios started doing the Academy Awards. <laughs> they do do that. Because they the studios owned all the directors and actors and writers, so they started doing this award ceremony so that they would shut up and leave them alone. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Yes. I, it it, it, it holds tradition. true today. It definitely holds true today. Um, and obviously, you know, we're all, we're Guillermo del Toro fans here. Um, the, the, I think some of you saw my, my favorites of the year. Uh, it was another Hispanic film for me that was a, the best movie of the year, but it was Coco, which mm-hmm. ha, it has its own category. And, and, and I mean, let's just face it. All right. I know you're probably a fan of Guillermo del Toro. You may have liked Shape of Water. Uh, we love Doug and everything Doug does. Um, but Coco was the best movie of the year. <laughs> okay. Let's just Coco. And Boss Baby. I'm kidding. Not, maybe not Boss Baby. <laughs> although I've although I've, I've been in way too many conversations with people who are like, you know, Boss Baby is better than it had any right to be. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, you got past a 10 minute point? Wait, how did that thing get in front of your eyes? Because <laughs> now we have options on planes. Like you can't yeah. use the, I watched it on a well, plane Well, it's on excuse. Netflix now, so. You definitely can't use the, it's on Netflix excuse at this point. When you have options, how did you find out that Boss Baby was better than it had any right to be? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> that used to be the excuse, right? Well, I watched it on a plane. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not my, I watched it on a plane. I mean, come on. I watched it on a plane. Now there are definitely options on the plane, including jumping out of the plane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how did you get so far into Boss Baby? <laughs> yeah, there, there's still options on the plane, but I feel like I give myself a pass when I'm on a plane to watch a really bad movie. Like, I think it holds over the whole cultural tradition of bad movies on planes. Yeah. And when have been, when now, uh, now I will ask you this, Austin, when, when, has, when have you been pleasantly surprised by a movie that you're like, you know what? I'm on a plane. I'm going to watch something that I would not watch normally because I have my answer for sure. Uh, when have you been pleasantly surprised by a film? Oh, on a plane? I yeah. feel like I normally watch the really bad ones to more just like, you know, spectating a car crash kind of <laughs> movie. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on anything that comes to mind. What was yours, Alex? Oh, uh, I don't, I just watch whatever is the most mindless, whatever will get me through the flight faster. Uh-huh. You know, I've I've developed a, serious anxiety over flying so oh. the, the more mindless the blockbuster the oh, so easier the like flight is for me Liam Neeson January, late January release here we go yeah right <laughs> take it part eight yeah this time it's more personal than personal and I think that they would get a lot of real estate if they just 
called whatever this last Liam Neeson movie on a train was taken something mm-hmm. you know it's like a universal as they continue to make like bigger and larger um franchise movies like you know Jurassic World 2 and you've got another Fast and Furious movie the next trailer like, let's just face it Geekscape it's the next poster for one of these universal movies should just be a Tyrannosaurus Rex with a car flying over it like jumping over it. <laughs> and Liam Neeson in the foreground. Liam, you, what studio is doing these Liam Neeson movies? I feel like right. it's Fox, but Universal, you got to give them a call. You jumping know? the Tyrannosaurus jumping Rex. Jumping the Tyrannosaurus Rex with the Grinch in the passenger seat. <laughs> <laughs> or, or one of the animated properties, and yeah. then you've got it. Let's see how many franchises Let's we can marry. Let's do it. Let's do it, Universal. <laughs> uh, I think Sony wanted to beat them to the punch with the whole rumor of like a Men in Black movie with like crossed over with 22 Jump Street. Mm-hmm. And it's like now we're now it's just okay. <laughs> all right. I think that's what they're okay. doing with Ready Player One. They're gonna have a lot of like <laughs> references to all these older like eighties films in there. Yeah. And you know what, Geekscape is I blame you. Bart Simpson's in it. I blame you for telling the people Yeah, you signed on. <laughs> Bart's people finally were like, yeah, right. oh, this works for us. Let's yeah. go. Um Geekscape I do, I do kind of blame us, I, you know, I won't, I won't take myself out. Of it. I blame us for like telling the, the telling the people with the bean counting skills, like, please pander to us more. Yeah, <laughs> please pander to us more. And I, uh, in my running group, there's a book group. There's a book group within the running group, and they have all. And Ready Player One was the last one's book, and I just did not want to read it. Like you can't. And they're like, I, we thought this book would be perfect for you, <laughs> and I said, but that's like. I go home to Ready Player One. Like Ready Player One is my bedroom and my living room. I don't want no. Yeah. No. Totally. No. 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 If you guys knew the books, I read, like I read nonfiction books about like like no no. <laughs> I don't want my Ready Player One. Um, I will tell you this though. Uh, I did really, really, really enjoy your movie. Thank you. Oh, good. Thank you Thank very you. much. It's in theaters now. Geekscape is is also on VOD on demand. So if you guys are doing a little bit of. Uh, Ready Player One, and you're like on a PS4 or your Xbox One or whatever has like a digital marketplace on it, like this computer. I've seen your analytics. I know how you guys listen to the show. Uh, click on over and download Midnighters or rent it and uh, and watch it. Especially if you're a fan of like these thrillers. I got to tell you, I uh, I loved the idea of this movie because the way it built in the real world settings of it. Um. I don't really like the supernatural horror stuff. Mm. It, it's really hard to grow, for me to ground myself in the character's decisions during Agreed. a yeah. supernatural horror. So what was the origin of this movie? Well, funnily enough, that really was the um, origin in terms of the concept of it all. We wanted to do a film. And I mean, I've my background, I've been lucky enough to work in um, genre television um, on some shows that your listeners are probably familiar with. I, I've, I've always been a big sci-fi horror guy. I worked on Battlestar Galactica for a lot of years at um, Flash Forward, Alias, and I was on The Walking Dead for five years. So that's my background. That's been my bread and butter, and I really love that stuff. As a, as a viewer and as an artist, it was amazing to participate in. But when we were doing this film, my brother and I um, sat down and we wanted to come up with a story that didn't rely on any supernatural horror. We wanted the monsters to be human monsters and the drama to be interpersonal drama. And um, to that end, we really went back, I think, more to like the Hitchcock canon, um, that those types of psychological thrillers that are 
based on the machinations between people and are relying on a fast moving plot and you know goosing that with some of the modern like st- storytelling techniques that um we've acquired and um that was really the genesis of what the, the parameters we set for this project as we wanted it to be a thriller that didn't have as we like to put it a magical Ouija board mm-hmm. in it um because i think there's so many movies out there that rely on a gimmick like that and then when you go see the film you realize well they kind of shot their load with the gimmick but the the film itself the character development the plot machinations i mean there's not a lot there once you get past the gimmick and that's why you know i'll I'll see a film that has a really interesting concept and i'll go watch it and the first act is great it's really interesting seeing that and then it just kind of fizzles so um that was one parameter the other was we wanted to do a film that if push came to shove, we could shoot it at a low enough budget that we could, you know, raise the money and do it ourselves. And that was really the genesis. And we sat down and crafted this rough storyline um, before my brother Alston went and wrote the script. And where did you guys shoot the movie? Because we shot in Rhode Island. We uh-huh. shot about twenty minutes south of Providence in a town called East Greenwich. Oh wow! Because yeah. that's not a state that you think of when people, you start thinking about production. No, production friendly. We had met some um, filmmakers, um, some guys, uh, Joe Bagos, who did a film um, called The Mind's Eye and um, Almost Human, and um, they had shot in Rhode Island, and we had heard that it was a really great indie filmmaker friendly community um you know this the state of Rhode Island has a really great tax credit so it's not on a lot of people's maps but it's close enough to Boston that you get a lot of that crew base you know because there are a lot of films shot up in Boston um so that was one reason the other was that um our film takes place on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day so we really wanted to have that you know stark creepy dark New England feel. You know, we wanted forests, we wanted woods, we wanted trees that didn't have any leaves on them and try as we might, we just couldn't find anywhere in the Southern California area that mimicked that. Although, (laughs) you know, we had a lot of producers who said, oh, you can shoot in Southern California and funnily enough, there are some streets, you know, in Hollywood and in Pasadena where there's like one street, there's a street right in the center of Hollywood which is where the film Halloween was shot where they shot the main street and you go on the street and it feels like you're in New England, like randomly mm-hmm. in the center of Hollywood. It's bizarre. I think it's called Orange Drive or Orange Street. And so we went and we, we scouted a lot of these places because there were some things logistically that would have made it easier to shoot in Los Angeles, like getting actors involved, getting certain crew. But we needed a lot more scope because there was a lot of forest. There was a lot of, you know, that New England landscape that we just couldn't find in Southern California. And that's what um, sent us to a New England in the winter, which ultimately, you know, being on location and being in the correct location for your story, I think it adds so much to your film. I think um, viewers really pick up on the fact that you're not where you say you are when you're shooting on stages and then you get a second unit, you know, like a cameraman and a director and you go to New England and you shoot a bunch of exterior shots to sort of establish it. It's not quite the same thing that when you can have your character go to the door and in front of them, you know, is a, you know, empty fields and and desolate forest and all all these things that are just part of that environment. I also think there's a bit of a summer camp mentality they get with shooting on location. Like all your actors are cloistered and the same you know, on an indie budget, it's an Airbnb and you're all kind of getting your meals together and you become your own little tribe and you're off making this film and there's not a lot of time for people to, you know, fuck around and like go out to concerts or go to bars or do their thing. I mean, everyone is there to work. And I think that um, spurs a lot of creativity and passion and improvisation 
that you don't necessarily get if everybody's sleeping comfortably in their own bed. And um, how how long did it take you guys to shoot the film? Uh, we shot. We had about twenty two. We had twenty two days of, of photography. Um, but my brother and I, you know, we moved up there um, like that the year we shot, which was um, two years ago now. Um, we sh- we moved up a few days before New Year's Eve, and so we were there prepping for about um, six or seven weeks before we started filming. Wow. Um, and just to lay the groundwork for you guys narratively, the movie has, uh, it starts out with a, a couple driving home from a New Year's uh, Eve party, and they may or may not have had a little too much to drink, and what I love is this kind of meandering, this this conversation where you just start, get, start getting this sense of dread as they go down this two-lane road through the birch trees, and the visibility is low, there's like ice on the street, uh, There's there's snow, and then... Uh, as they're not paying a, a, enough attention, they they look up around a turn and there's someone in the middle of the street and there's no time to do anything and they end up hitting an individual in the middle of the, of the road. He ends up on the hood of the car and then onto the street and the couple doesn't know what, doesn't know what to do and they check to see if he's still breathing and ultimately they decide they're going to take him to the hospital and they put him in the back of the car. Um, but for whatever reasons, and I'll let you guys watch the movie, they do not end up in the hospital. They end up taking this uh, this person to their house um, and into the garage. And it reminded me of the real world story of the woman in Dallas mm-hmm. who ended up hitting the individual and uh, for whatever lapses of judgment ended up with the individual, I thought, halfway and through her, halfway through her yeah. windshield. She and, was a nurse too. And she was to a nurse. make it more just horrifying and and for he, how long did that go on she, she brought the person to her garage and her boyfriend came over yeah and he was halfway through the windshield bleeding still alive begging for help and i think it was 24 hours that he slowly bled to death and they could hear him inside the house begging for help screaming um, <laughs> yeah and they just didn't and that that article inspired some of the you know the the deeper themes of this film that are kind of asking putting ordinary people under extraordinary circumstances what do they do right. why do they make some really poor decisions and you know the question also would you make the same decision or not yeah and um and Alex what was it like playing someone like that because obviously when you hear a story like that and I remember the story I mean I, as I was watching your film I rem- I I didn't want to assume that the, the the basis for some of it had been inspired by that story in Dallas, but I remembered the story from Dallas very clearly, mm-hmm. and was like there. There's a level of sociopathy that, that like, like this woman. It, do we do you just assume that she's sociopathic? Like that you would let this person just be halfway through her windshield for 24 hours without taking her, and then ha- let the boyfriend discover her and the different steps to that. Um, you, I don't think you can dismiss a character like that, and I think you guys did a very good job of laying the groundwork for these characters to make decisions that sound that were s- soundish at least mm-hmm. in the making. Uh, but you can see how these characters made those decisions and followed. How what was it like? Because obviously, I don't think you want to judge this character going in. You oh, I, be, yeah, I couldn't if yeah. I tried. Um, well, the, the thing that's interesting about Lindsay is that she doesn't really make decisions at the beginning of the film. She takes her cue from other people. Mm-hmm. She lets herself get talked into things by Jeff. She takes people at their word. You know, I mean, and all of this kind of speaks to, you know, a greater a greater um, objective of hers, which is to 
to commit uh, almost blindly to this idea of stable domesticity mm-hmm. where she has like she's telling herself she has a house and a job and a husband and her sister's back and all of this but she doesn't really belong there you know she's sort of a outsider from the beginning so I think that because of that it, it, it breeds in her this sort of self-doubt and insecurity which allows her to sort of be uh you know led along the, I mean that, that that's the great arc about her I mean that's the real shift that happens that she she goes from being a doormat to a uh designer of her own fate right so and you did that really well uh in the opening um we have this great scene early on it's a, I mean I would say it's the first scene you you have a little bit of flash early on in the credits uh, or in the opening, mm. where, where there's a little bit of a flash forward to, you know, just give you a little taste, Keys Capus. There's a little bit of a violent flash forward early on in the movie, like in the first minute or two. And then you have this New Year's Eve party, and your character is completely alone, and everybody starts kissing. And you're like, wait, where's my guy? Yeah. <laughs> and you go outside, and exactly. he's smoking a cigarette and texting or Being something. And yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and no offense, I'm sure he's a very nice guy. The actor, but for that, that character initially, you're like, "What are you doing with this guy?" Yeah, like totally. What what, what do you what is this? And, yeah. and and then you find out later that you're the one who is making payments on the house that they moved into that they're renovating. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. You know what? Whenever the when the chips start to fall in this movie, because Geekscape is, we only gave you the beginning, and the chips really start falling in this movie. More, there's much more going on here than simply like. Who was this person, and why is he walking in the middle of the road, and mm-hmm. where was he headed, and et cetera, et cetera? So you got to watch the movie to figure that stuff out. But as the chips start falling, you know, yeah, we start rooting for your character and this guy who was texting outside, smoking a cigarette when the ball dropped on New Year's, <laughs> and we're just kind of like, you know what? I like the guy, but what happens happens, man. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. When it comes down to it. Sorry, bro. Yeah, exactly. You had your chance. <laughs> but your character still has, you know, there, there's a nice moment when things do go down in, in your character. There is a, a nice moment there at kind of the crux of the movie, you know, with the hands and this and that, that I thought was, it was still some some level of, of, of sentiment there. You know, and even in that last shot, and we, we're not going to spoil it, Geekscape us again, you're going to have to watch the movie. <laughs> but that last shot, I was like, I would like to talk to Alex about after everything that character's been through mm-hmm. is this what is this you know what I mean like there's right. one last shot I'm like wait a minute like what is going through her mind right now mm. because it is a bit of an emotional whirlwind in uh, a bit of a grinder that you guys put put her character through <laughs> You know, so 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 it's a mixed sentiment, and I think it's a it's a it's a credit to this movie that it didn't that it wasn't a clear sentiment. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, that was obviously Absolutely. that was clear. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, people, you you. I mean, I, I've had people text me uh, after seeing it, saying, "I can't tell if she's laughing or crying," and that's part of it. Good. Yeah, it's meant and, to and be. It's both, you know. Yeah. Don't. Take make the movie longer than the one and a half hour running time in that way. Yeah, Does that make sense? I hated right. it. And the scene you refer to, I mean, that's really the scene where she Lindsay acquires her agency, and simultaneously, um, I think it's really smart. And Austin was really smart to write in a scene that, as one of my friends says, that becomes the water cooler scene. That's the scene that 
people are talking about. You know, that's the scene from Reservoir Dogs where he cuts off the guy's ear. You know, that's the scene that people get out of the film and they're talking about. And we deliberately made that particular scene, mm-hmm. you know, very impactful. And for those those in your fan base that like gore, there's a little bit of gore. And we didn't show a lot of gore in this film, but there are places where you see gore and it might be too much for some people. But um, <laughs> we wanted to show it because we thought it was such an important part of the character's development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you're just going to watch the movie to find out. Um, so, also, talk to me. Um, what was your background before this? I had read that you were doing all sorts of writing that was not screenwriting. Uh, that would be true. <laughs> I guess some people would say it's a form of fiction, but <laughs> I was a speechwriter in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, so, I started my career in journalism as a magazine editor, and then I was working at the Defense Department for the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates. Um, writing speeches during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars from Mm -hmm. about 2006 to 2010. And I apparently liked those wars so much that I made the decision to go spend a year in Afghanistan. Oh, my God. Doing um, a similar job for General Petraeus, who was the commanding general at that time. And that was the guy Obama put in. Uh, Petraeus was Obama's guy? or Well, he was a general, so he's both people's guy. I been hired by a general called McChrystal and mm-hmm. a few weeks before I was going to go work for him in Afghanistan he got fired um, because some of his staff members had made some <laughs> ill-advised comments about the vice president which you know was Cheney if you yeah. um, to a Rolling no, that Stone was reporter Biden, Biden, <laughs> Biden at that point um, yes to a Rolling Stone reporter because it's always a great idea to have a Rolling Stone reporter embedded with you when you're running a war um, <laughs> Especially when the the guys in office are probably counter to what Rolling Stone's mission statement is, right? <laughs> like, sex, you know, drugs, and rock, rock sex, and roll. Like, and what could possibly go wrong? It was funny. The Bush administration. That's the, great. The, the, I mean, the funny part about that is that it really went off the rails when um, you know you the commanding general travels around Europe to keep the coalition together from time to time. Okay. And they're in Europe with this Rolling Stone reporter, and there was this volcano in Iceland that went off, and all traffic, air traffic got grounded. I remember that. That was massive. Yeah, yeah, including a four-star general in charge of a war effort with, you know, 120, 130,000 people in 40 countries. He can't get back to Afghanistan. And right. so it became a bit of a um, party scene, shall we say, which generally if you're deployed when you're not in country and you're out, you want to let off a little steam and yeah it's not a volcano joke people and you've got a Rolling Stone reporter um, that's just hanging out partying with you and I guess taking really copious notes Um, but so then President Obama put Petraeus in that position Petraeus actually took a demotion on paper to take that role Um, so yeah he was there a year and I was there for most of the year with him and what was that like? it blows yeah. yeah, there's no easy way to put it. Um, I mean, I, I was a civilian, so I wasn't in harm's sure. way the way that people are that are down, down range. I was in Kabul, which was pretty safe at the time. I mean, you're just, you're on a military base. You know, you're away from friends, you're away from family. We were working, I don't know, 110 hours a week, um, seven days a week, no vacation. You're just bored out of your mind after a while, or you're just working. I mean, you're just working you're all just the working. time. Yeah, yeah. Mind numbing. Mind numbing. Right, yeah. right. I mean, PowerPoint reports back to the country oh. and um, you know you just there's no social outlets either and that just sort of starts like catching up to you you know you never go out with friends you never go get like a drink at a bar like 
you know, and you're eating the slop from the German contract company that that is running the dining facility. And you can imagine if you get the lowest bidder German company feeding like masses buffet style. Um, imagine they, morale probably takes a hit. Yeah, they, they're not exactly known for you know their their culinary touch. I guess you could say. And you did that for a year. That's about ten months. Yeah, but and you're just. It's, I mean, what, what was the correspondence between you and your brother during this period? Like, did you notice that? Like, like you're over. Here, you know, you're uh, working. Yeah, I sent him a lot of episodes of Battlestar Galactica <laughs> and The Walking Dead <laughs> like, in the room. I well, watched the room once. Oh God, it was. <laughs> It was so funny. I've been told about this, and I'm trying to get my colleagues. I'm like, oh, we have to watch this. It's like this yeah. well-known, bizarre movie. And I started watching it, and we got to the first lovemaking scene, which is, I mean, yeah. all of three minutes into the movie or something. And mm-hmm. I just, and we didn't know what it, what this movie was, and everyone's like getting uncomfortable, and everyone left except me. And so I just <laughs> sat in my office and like watched the room by myself. I don't know if that's the way to watch it. That's I don't know if that's the way your brother intended you to watch it, but circumstances were what circumstances were. <laughs> that movie's amazing. Um we've had Tommy at the on the show and we really? had, we had Tommy on the show. Geekscape is some of you will remember this. I recently reshared the episode because of the disaster artist being in theaters and um and I've talked to Greg in the last month about coming on the show. Um but when Tommy came in, remember back in the day we recorded this show at my house, Geekscapers, and he came in and was just like looking at everything in my office, like, I like your movies. <laughs> he was just like looking at everything, and uh, we got a little chippy, but um, but I think the guy's, you know, the guy's okay. Yeah. He does his thing. Nice guy. He does his thing. He doesn't um, pretend. That's, that's one of the things pre- I really respect about him. <laughs> he does not pretend. I don't think he could if he tried. Yeah, uh, I don't know. In the love making scenes, he looked like he was pretending. That, I don't know. I, I don't know. He may actually just what's... bang belly buttons. Yeah. <laughs> that's his deal. He's like any Audi. Yeah, let's do some any Audi. Like, I, I still want to know how he made his money. Uh, yeah. I think everybody does, mm-hmm. and um, I I don't know. Uh, Geekscape is also another text to Greg and see if we can get him on the show because uh, now that the Oscars are over, I think that they're. Uh, I, I think Greg and Tommy have another movie coming out, and so I like Greg. Every conversation I've had with Greg has been awesome, and he's super nice. Um, I think I don't know. You guys are gonna you guys are gonna throw a fit if I have Greg in here without Tommy, but it's easy. I'm telling you right now, it's easier if I just have Greg. Okay, like, you will get more of a show. I don't know. Well, to some of you, I think if I just have Greg on here, I can just talk to Greg. And you'll have a conversation. <laughs> if, <laughs> if the whole circus comes in here, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. They already hate me around here. I'm kidding. Uh, Lindsay likes me because I bring Lindsay coffee. Um, so listen, let's get back to Midnighters. Uh, what was the response? I mean, you guys, where did you guys premiere the, the movie? It sounds uh, like a South by Southwest type style. Uh, yeah, we actually premiered at the Los Angeles Film Festival mm-hmm. in June. So okay. um, yeah, the response was great. You know, as an indie film um, without... You know, we didn't really have any big time producers or anything attached to this. Um, it's always hard because you're doing all the work yourself. So it was a lot of, um, you know, just knocking on doors, emails. What was that process like? Because you guys had to do, you guys did the fundraising yourselves and everything. Yeah, yeah. talk about it. Long and you difficult. Ha- how long did it take you to write the script? 
Um, we came up with the idea in January. Sort of, we outlined it for a couple of months, two or three months. I wrote it in a couple of weeks after we kind of had that, and then we revised it through the summer. So from start to finish, probably six months. I'd say. How extensive was your outline? Like your outline was. Um um, I mean, scene by scene, and the point we'd figure out the characters, the structure, what happens in each. Because the nuts and bolts on this thing have to be fun. like you can't yeah. leave any air, yeah. mm-hmm. or else the audience will have that refrigerator logic that Hitchcock talks about. Where it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> and, and some what of that, the fuck? Some of that you you work in, like you know, you have to fill in some little holes in sort of the actual like dialogue or text once you figured out sort of the broader structure. Mm, sure, and so you guys do that outline work and that document. Because that's what I, I mean. I I, I, have, I work from a pretty massive outline where a lot of that stuff's been done, and then you just I literally just drag it into final cut, a final draft because I don't care. Like I don't want to see blank pages, or else I'll, I'll like I'll like run back to the written. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it'll just be like I'll just keep pushing stuff around. And but I like when I get to see outline in front of me because I know what I can have left to replace. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean we we had it on note cards, the note mm-hmm. card method, um, and probably had about I don't know three quarters a little more of the note cards we didn't even I don't think we had it completely done when we started but you know you gotta bang through a first draft because that's more than half the battle so I kind of once it's enough in my head that I feel like I have a good sense of the characters and where everything's going and what's happening and the vast majority of the scenes um, I kind of kill myself for a couple weeks you know like not really sleeping because my mind's just going a million miles an hour. That, when you're writing that first draft, yeah. Exactly. And crank out, you know, I think the first draft was 110 pages. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's right about what we went in with to the shoot. With that's really nice. That's that sound. That's that's around where you want to aim. Uh, and uh, when, you, when you're just gunning it like that, the goal is to write Fade to Black. Just write the end. Mm-hmm. Just like, like, just done. Were there any places in his writing that surprised you when he would hand pages in and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's a surprise. I actually didn't know that he was writing the script. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a big surprise. That was a big surprise. Yeah, we had been um, working on it and then um, I went on a trip <laughs> to Europe with uh, a, a woman I was dating at the time and uh, while I was gone, and, and then we had our, our middle brother got, we have another third brother, um, a middle one, he got married and then went to his, what we all went to his wedding. And then when we got back, Alston one day said, okay, here's the script. And I said, oh, you're done? And he's like, yep, I did it. And I was like, oh, shit, I didn't know you were writing this. It's that 110 um, hours a week thing that hit Yeah, like, which was a very, you got all wired. Yeah, it was a pleasant surprise. It's your so PTSD. Um, there was a lot, I mean, you know, not knowing it was done, but then, you know, there was a lot in there that, that did surprise me. I mean, you know, very pleasantly. There were a lot of new twists. There were a lot of, um, you know, some subplots that had been created. Um, and there were a number of scenes that we hadn't, I mean, that the scene we were talking about before, that was not a scene we had ever talked about. Um, really? We, we kind of knew that something was going to happen as a turn, like a character turn, which is where, as I said, Lindsay really gets her agency in the film. But we had not flushed that out in any way, shape, or form. And so that was a total surprise. We knew there would be some form of violence, not the exact nature of the violence. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're like, hi, and you were like, holy shit, my brother's capable well, of thinking this fucked up shit up. <laughs> well, he had written some screenplays before. I'd uh-huh. seen a screenplay he wrote. He did a war screenplay when he was living in Afghanistan. So I knew he was capable, but um, I just, you know, it was a very pleasant surprise. Yeah, I, I literally moved to LA with my stuff in my trunk after a cross country trip and I got 
to his apartment, stayed on the sofa, got up at about five the next morning to drive him to the airport. Um, he got on a plane because he was going to France for a couple weeks. And I came back and moved into my apartment, which was adjacent to his, like that day. Um, and then I think I started writing the script the day after with a goal to try to finish it before heading to this wedding just because... Why not? You give yourself a deadline. You get, yeah, you get the, the first draft. I mean, and it changed dramatically because, you know, Jude had, he had wonderful views on what he wanted as a director, um, you know, with the characters and just his experience working on, you know, all these, all these shows and his instinct for story. Um, you know, so it went through a number of revisions over the next few months to try to bring it closer to what, his vision for the film was, which then gets fleshed out even further as he's going into casting and production design. And then, you know, finally on set making all the decisions on, you know, the, the camera work and the director of photography and all of that. Mm-hmm. Not to mention editing. Right. Right. And so, I mean, at one point did, did you ever have to shut him out and be like, sorry, writer? No, no, that <laughs> never really happened. I mean, you know, it was always, it, it was a huge asset to have him, um, you know, on set and when we're shooting the film because there were changes based on, you know, our original, the original location, the house that they had in the film. It's very much a kind of middle class, like even lower middle class, like house, like a very small thing. And we wound up coming across this beautiful, I mean, you've seen the movies, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very cinematic, giant, I mean, if I would say mansion that we found and it was this couple that was willing to rent us this mansion for a very low price and it would have helped us on so many levels because one, it's so cinematic and two, we needed room for production offices and catering and cast changing rooms and all that type of stuff. You literally shoot where you guys were working. We did. Yeah. Everything was there. When you're shooting on an indie film, you, you, you still need that space for, you know, you need Mm -hmm. places for the crew to go eat spaghetti on their lunch break. And, um, if you're shooting in a tiny little house, you're going to have to set up like tents or trailers or whatever. And on an indie budget, that's near impossible. So we found this incredible house and we said, well, how can we use this house? Like, how can we make it work? And so that's what we added into the script that part of the storyline is that this couple is living in this old dilapidated, you know, house that they got for a song and they're renovating it. Like it's falling apart. And so what we actually did was take what was a very nice house and in the film, make it look much worse than it actually appears we actually there's some cg shots at the front where we put boards on the windows and made holes in the roof so you know i was worried that the owners were going to see the film and think oh my god you guys tore up our have, house. have they seen the movie uh, they have they have it they, they they like? it. well they once we were done shooting they knew their film their, their, their house was okay <laughs> we're good. We're but good. We, we set up and we set up construction equipment inside and tarps. made it look like tarps and and, and the cool thing about that is, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Because we found that house and because we made it work with the storyline, it added this whole other texture to the film that we otherwise wouldn't have had. Because for me, and I, I, don't, I mean, uh, uh, Alex can speak to this, you know, as, as far as for the actors, like it adds a lot to a place. I don't know if you've ever, if you or your listeners have ever lived in a home that is under construction, under renovation, because it's like open to the outside. Things feel unsettled. It doesn't feel like, you know, permanent. There are friggin' saws and hammers and sawdust everywhere. It's very disconcerting and like your whole foundation is unstable. And I think 
for our characters and for our actors, that was helpful because that's an analogy for what this couple's relationship is like. Their marriage is unstable. Their marriage is unfinished and it's mm-hmm. open to the outside. It's vulnerable. You feel very vulnerable when you're in a house like that. And so at least for me as a director, I thought it was a wonderful tone. And I mean, I'm curious, Alex, what you thought as an actor. You know, the the, the environment and the location uh, were as much characters in the film as, as any of us were. And, uh, and I mean, that, that really helped as an actor far more so than if we had been on a set of a house that was under construction, you know, because you really get the full scope of your your imaginary world and your imaginary circumstances. Um, so yeah, absolutely, it's it's extremely helpful. It really informs the performances. It really gives you a sense of isolation and and the cold. I mean, it was freezing. It really really helped add to it as well that the, the feeling of being trapped in the middle of nowhere. Now, um, when you guys are shooting. This is because of the production concerns. Is, this isn't a movie that you can shoot in sequence. Actually, um, because we, I, you can see how it would be helpful for for Alex in the way that her character is progressing. Right. That, yeah. To um, maybe shoot, not that she needs that kind of thing, but to, no. like shooting. She in, doesn't. No. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the actors definitely could have shot it out of sequence, and there were certainly some production considerations that would have made it a lot easier to shoot out of sequence. But I, I decided to um, shoot it in sequence as much as possible because um, I felt that the journey for the characters was going to be a little more organic mm-hmm. and um, we we went through a lot jumped through a lot of hoops so that we could more or less shoot it in sequence I mean there were a couple scenes that were shot way out of sequence but um, there's also an environmental consideration to think about when you are shooting a film our film takes place from basically New Year's Eve midnight on New Year's Eve until midnight on New Year's Day so it's over the course of 24 hours that said, that means the weather has to be completely consistent. You can't, mm-hmm. you have a day that it's raining. Well, you can't show that it's raining because it can't just be a, you know, hailstorm for 20 minutes in the middle of the movie. So we had to be very careful not to show the outside because our problem with shooting in Rhode Island that time of year is that it's, it was, it was snow. There was snow on the ground everywhere. Like there was four or five feet of snow. When we started filming, halfway through the film, all the snow melted and all the snow was gone. <laughs> and we didn't know what was going to happen. So right. we, we scheduled it so that in the middle of the shoot, we had one week where we were going to shoot everything that was outside, yeah. all our exteriors. And what I said is whatever the weather is like that week, whether there's snow on the ground that or no snow, it. that is the weather for the film. And so for the first half of the shoot, we had to be very careful never to show outside because if we sh- showed outside and we saw that there were four feet of snow on the ground, um, we're locked into that and right. there's no continuity. And as it happened, there was four feet of snow on the ground and it did melt and it melted right before we were going to shoot our exterior. So the film, while there's a little bit of like cold frostbite, you see tiny patches of snow everywhere. For the most part, it's just a barren winter day with the ground free of snow. But man, you can see the their breath in the garage, which <laughs> yeah. was like 15 degrees. And Alex loves the cold. I she do. Just loves the cold. Where'd you grow up, Alex? I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Okay, so it's cold, yeah. Freezing. Yeah, freezing. <laughs> it's really Sub-zero. freezing there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I, I imagine that you have to justify something within you where it's like, okay, 
did the character grow like did the character grow up in cold is this a problem is this not a problem because mm-hmm. i mean how conscious in, in your performance is this fact that you it's pretty damn cold oh yeah i mean it, you you completely use it mm-hmm. you incorporate it entirely i mean you I, I feel like it's important to do that no matter what the circumstances are because that's where the character is mm-hmm. wherever you are is where the character is and how did you guys find alex uh, we found Alex through casting. I mean, I, I was familiar with her work. I'd seen the film Starry Eyes, and um, we have a great casting director named Kelly Roy. And um, Kelly was a big Alex fan, and we had seen a lot of other people. And then she brought Alex in and said, we're really excited about Alex. And um, Alex put herself on tape for um, you know with a couple scenes, and we saw it, and we, we loved her. So she was our first choice. She's all smiling. Yeah. <laughs> that must sound good. Um, it's p- other people who audition, if they listen to this, are just like, that mother. <laughs> well, the thing, the thing about casting, particularly with the um, antagonists of the film, which I think your viewers will enjoy immensely. Sure. But, you know, it, it's really not a reflection all the time when you say no to people on their talent level. It's just the right fit for the right for sure, role for sure. um, and, and you know as a newcomer to film I wasn't aware of that until you know, I have the script that I've written and I could see people and I'd be like they're great I love what they're doing it's not this character though mm-hmm. um, and, and you can't you, know, you have to be sort of you have to be comfortable with each one of those casting choices and I think that's you know one of the things that Jude and I saw eye to eye on and, and with all of our characters those you know we saw their tape and we're like that's the right person Mm-hmm. There's not really like any, didn't really have to watch it again. We did. And probably a third and fourth, fifth time. But like from the get go, we're like, that's the person. And it's crazy how that happens where you're like, where you're sitting through submissions or you're sitting through auditions and it can get a little stressful where you're like, I don't know if we're going to find this. Mm-hmm. And then you get one person and they may have been the only one that fit that way uh, even amongst all the talented people you you have that specific thing that you're looking for and it's crazy how only one person usually personifies that and it's i mean that all happens almost every time unless you're going for something that is just i don't know out of the box a little bit and but, then how they fit together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right yeah yeah um so you got the script you get everything going and this is in August when you guys finished the script. Um, yeah, uh, and we had it finished to the point that we were ready to go run around with our hat in hand and, and try to the get heck money. Do you do? In Where do you even Los start Angeles. with that? Well, we started in LA, sort of the proper route, and mm. it became clear over the course of a number of months that um, the timeline for potentially getting someone to actually say, yes, we want to do this small independent film with um, a first-time feature director, even though Jude has plenty of mm-hmm. experience directing major TV shows. And that's why he respects the writer so much, as he came out of that t- the mm-hmm. TV. Like, he wasn't like, there's no Michael Bay on set here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Um, and and over the course of a few months, we just realized like that that timeline could be years, yeah. if it ever happens. And... You know, when people tell you, like, hey, you know, good scripts, a lot of good scripts never get made in movies. It's Los Angeles. And I think our attitude was always like, yeah, maybe that's true that a lot don't, but damn it, this one is. And so I'd say it was about the next summer um, 
maybe maybe getting into the late spring when we started realizing, hey, we need to th- start thinking other options here. And I had gone to business school prior to moving out here after Afghanistan, and um, I had been involved in some fundraising for startups, uh, for a couple of small startups in the angel fundraising stage. And this is pretty much the same totally. in terms of like what you're doing, where if you can... And we were learning about the budgets, and we started, you know, we we got our hands on budgets for other small, low budget indie films, and you start learning like, oh, this is what things cost. Well, let's make our own budget, and let's bring this cost down, down, down. And at the same time, you're raising little chunks of money to bring your amount that's going to be in the bank up, 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 and eventually the lines cross, and you say, we can go make this movie now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just have to figure out. Yeah, that's the thing about. Los Angeles is nobody wants to sip like nobody even wants to stick their toe in the pool. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they definitely don't want to jump all in until then, everyone else is in the you pool. You start realizing mm-hmm. nobody even wants to stick their toe in the pool because they're like, Oh, this is great. Not me. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, has everybody just lost their cojones? Or because they don't want to be first. Yeah. <laughs> but they'll gladly follow once totally. you have a proven track record. It's, it's insane. Um, and I, yeah, no, it, it's something that you face every freaking day as a filmmaker. The people who are just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wait, there's a dollar sign attached? Nah, well, nah, no. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really smart going out of L.A. And I think you see, you, you know, you end up with heroes who are people like Jim Jarmusch or I previously said Richard Linklater, et cetera, et cetera, who you look up and you say, you know what? Those guys did bring money out of Europe. They did figure out money out of pulling people out of the oil business in Texas or here and there because everybody loves movies or ever loves some form of entertainment and wants to be involved at some level. And, and it seems like the people in L.A. are almost, you know when you get to that point where your education is almost working against you? Mm-hmm. Totally. And here we are in the hotbed of educations working against oneself. And mm-hmm. I think it's also for filmmakers, you end up, um, you, you sort of see this around you and you start forgetting that there's all these ways outside of mm-hmm. the actual system. Let's, let's call it the, the system, the studio system. And we're supposed to be mavericks. Right, which is right. like and the it, biggest and it, BS ever. Right, and it becomes easy <laughs> when it's like, well, like none of these people will throw money in the kitty, or they're they've got a plan to go, you know, get someone, you know, a superstar attached to this little indie script and go raise a budget of six million dollars so the producers can make three million dollars or something when the film like it was never written to be that way. And I mean, or I include think, those actors. Yeah. Exactly. Or include those actors who would break the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, what's right. next? The, the, the next conversation is, hey, I'm here. Julius goes. You right. know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm involved in a project with my brother that you geeks gave us know about. And, and, and I'm absolutely, I mean, I wrote it for my brother, Paul. And my brother, Paul, is qualified to do it because of his wrestling background. And... <laughs> and his ridiculousness background. I love you, Paul. <laughs> um, and I'm sitting here, like, listening to the, the casting options and the options for this and that. And I'm like, okay, well, if I say yes to a couple of these, my brother goes. And I made, I wrote the whole damn thing for him. You know, mm-hmm. like, like, it's a love letter to this person. He doesn't go, you know. And 
I'll, we've got two other scripts. We'll just you know, like I'm not going to do that wrong. I, I, I really like your point, though. I mean, that it is you do think of filmmakers as mavericks, but once you get into the system and, and deferential to the system, it can you can lose that easily. We and all act like mavericks, but there's a level of competition that, and I've said it on the show before, like competition is counter to a creativity because you can't be free while you're checking someone else's homework. Mm-hmm. You, you know, imagine you're in a foot race with all these other directors and writers and actors, and I've been in this foot race for very long, Geekscapist, like you guys have seen the career, uh, and, and many times lack thereof. And, <laughs> and, and, and when the career stalls is when I'm checking other people's homework or I'm seeing who's ahead or who's behind in the foot race, instead of just focusing on what gets you ahead in your own estimation, which is the work. It's funny, last night, all, all three of us um, randomly watched a, a film on Netflix called The Push, which is all about yeah. social compliance. Yeah, I to hear about that. It sounded great. Yeah, it's all about social compliance, and I think that um, what you're saying is very astute, and I think social compliance can be a part of any industry, but particularly the film industry. You know, we're all looking at what everyone else is doing, and you start, you know, it's easy for people to think, well, that's the right way to do it, because all these other people are doing it, and the reality is there is no right way to do it. There are no rules. And I think it's very important as a filmmaker for you to remember what your intention was, because I think the genesis of most films or creative projects comes from a very pure place. And just what you're saying about putting your brother in this movie and, and what that movie was, what you wanted it to be when you first conceived of it, you want to make sure not to lose sight of that because that's what the film is. And this film was always meant to be this kind of a film where it's like all shot it's very homemade it's very you know small and put together and indie but it's still got a great plot and a, a thriller um, you know this cool thriller like vibe and I, I'm glad that we didn't take some of those options early on because it would have been very easy to lose sight of that and you're and I, doing things that are commercially viable to like I was joking literally joking Friday or Saturday night with some other filmmakers and I was like um, how many you know I was like how many times has your manager asked you to write a self-contained horror mm-hmm. and I'm just like fuck you <laughs> and so when I started watching this movie I'm like wait is this a self-contained horror and it's not and I'm so glad somebody didn't I'm so glad you didn't have the shot of somebody pulling an old box out from an attic right. <laughs> what's in here but you know, it's blow funny. off the dust and it's like uh, fucking Necronomicon starts talking to you <laughs> nobody wants to see your Sam Raimi movie alright right. pal yeah. Yeah. you Necronomicon in the, the editing room <laughs> Here's the thing, and like my manager said it, and I was so happy he said it. He goes, Nobody wants to see your wannabe Sam Raimi movie, okay? Like, <laughs> nobody wants to do it, nobody wants to see it. End of story. That mm-hmm. was the early 2000s, and, and like that whole generation of wanting to do it, or like Sam Raimi wannabe movies is over. Make your own damn movie. Yeah. Nobody wants to see a cover song. Find your voice. Just do yeah. it. And guys, you know I made a thesis film called Gay White On. Like, if anybody made a wannabe, <laughs> a wannabe Sam Raimi movie, I did it. But I, I would like to think that parody saved me on that instance. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you guys did something very smart. You took something that is, I think it's in demand in Hollywood still, is the self-contained horror. And you were like, oh, we're going to do self-contained and remove the horror. Mm-hmm. There will be horrific elements, but we're going to keep the grounding uh, you know, 
you, we're going we're to make sure that, that that Alex's feet are on the ground on this one. Yeah. So the audience can step through it. And I liked that the audience could step through it. We didn't have to make these leaps of the rules were our rules. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, yeah, it, it exists in reality, and it's pushing it. I think Jute's come up with the term "gothic fairy tale" to like describe that. to describe the film because it does have a gothic vibe and does have this you know, fairy tale. I mean, he he can describe it much better than I can. I think it's some of your imagery mm-hmm. for sure, and so I can see how your imagery led to that language. And there's a little bit of a in the storyline too. I mean, there you know two characters going through the woods on their way home and something bad happens and then halfway through the film, the wolf shows up. Sure, sure. Um, I can see that. I would I would say that that, uh, yeah, I, I'm wrestling a little bit with that, with, that, with that term and I can see how... More on a thematic visual, yeah, level. Yeah, thematically you're going with it. Thematically. But, the, but, the, it, but, but I find the word pro- fairy tale problematic. You know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, fairy tale, I mean, in a much more larger yeah. metaphoric sense. Well, I mean, in terms of. In a structural of a, sense, for sure. Yeah. In terms of a film, though, you know, the film I think that really inspired this is a film called Shallow Grave that was Danny Boyle's yeah. first film, it's which is one of my awesome. all time favorite it's films. Fucking I mean, awesome. And terrifying. The, yeah. It's amazing. One of the films that made me really pursue filmmaking. And I think that's what I said when we were, you know, conceiving this. I want to make show a it to film. Alex? Like, oh, I've I, seen Shallow she'd, Grave. She'd we're going to put it. you in a trunk. We're going to bury you under the floorboards. Have fun. Yeah. yeah. If you want this part, you're going to have to earn it, Alex. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so you're watching this film and you're just, you guys are just going crazy, jonesing, like, we got to make something like this. Exactly. Well, I'd seen, I mean, it's one of my all-time favorite films and Danny Boyle's one of the filmmakers I, I respect so much because I, I, I love his versatility. I mean, the fact that you have a guy that made that and train spotting and the beach and um some dog millionaire and I mean, there's nothing he can't do yeah 28 days and then he He's comes incredible. in 28 days later and i mean i love the train spotting the, sequel too the train spotting yeah. sequel is one of the best movies so of the year and yep. it got ignored completely totally. ignored and it was such a sad movie like to me it was so sad to watch yeah. this movie and it just bro- broke my heart watching this film and i loved oh, sure. it yeah it was an incredible oh, it was film. fantastic but i mean good time got snubbed too and that was my <laughs> other favorite film mm-hmm. this year um, so, I mean, you guys have this thing together. You start raising the money. You're like, let's go. Maybe not all the money is there, but you guys got to go because you got a window of shooting in January. Why would you write a movie to shoot in <laughs> the Northeast in January? <laughs> you guys started thinking about California a lot while you were yeah, shooting, didn't yeah, you? Like, oh, maybe Send me pictures. Why are you on Instagram? I'm looking at California. Yeah. Right. I spent eight years in school in New England. I told myself when I left, I would never spend another damn winter in New England. And then we chose to go do it. And I remembered that promise to myself several times when I'm, you know, freezing my ass off at three in the morning. And where'd you guys grow up? Uh, we grew up in North Carolina. It snows. Yeah, I remember as a Texan, and then going off to college for years in the Northeast. I was like, I ain't going back. There. Yeah, when you see the weather report of an Arctic blast, <laughs> and it shows the the graphic that it would show on the news, where it literally comes from the North Pole and it's got these big blue arrows, and I'm like, oh. Jesus, how's I mean? It was one time. It was negative thirty with the wind chill when I was in college. Why would you and, do that? And when when did the term bomb cyclone enter our vernacular? Because I keep hearing that all these like bomb storms. <laughs> I mean, why are we adding? I don't know Geekscapus, but I have been talking to Dean Devlin's people about getting him on the show, and um, I think that that is a such a Dean Devlin Roland Emmerich term. Right. <laughs> it's like bomb cyclone. That should be the next. 
movie. But I also yeah. think bomb is like a good word. Like, oh, that shit's the bomb. That's just the bomb. Like, so bomb, bomb cyclone, cyclone, like, sweet. That's yeah. the kind of cyclone that you could throw, like, and I'm speaking in as a Texan, that you could throw, like, a rope around and ride. <laughs> you, bomb you, cyclone. Or it's like what they would name something at a fair. Yeah. The bomb mm-hmm. cyclone. I want to go on that ride. It looks <laughs> right? insane. The movie version of that, I've been seeing these little trailers for, it's called Hurricane Heist. What? And it's from the producers of Fast and Furious. I know nobody creatively is <laughs> attached to that. You've seen the 15 second spot where I'm like, it's a bank heist and a hurricane. But are they Go. using the hurricane as their cover and their getaway, or did the hurricane happen to happen? Or is the hurricane played by The Rock and is there to stop the heist? <laughs> I was wondering all of these very same questions. <laughs> like, I got to tell you, Geekscapers, I, I saw a poster for that or a stand up in the theater. I went to see our friends at Fathom Events put Dark Crystal back in theaters, and oh, I went wow. to see it, and that shit. Totally stands up, and they're putting Labyrinth in theaters next month. Ah. Uh, and you got to go because Dark Crystal is such an incredible, incredible film. And yeah. to see it on the big screen uh, this time without being a scared four year old is just makes all the difference. <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen it several times in theaters, but every time I think back to the fact that my father brought me to see that movie as a kid, and it's not entirely for kids. But it's such an incredible movie. And I'm walking out of the theater and I see the big stand-up for Bomb Cyclone. And I'm like, yo, that movie looks pretty badass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know anything about it other than it's, it's an airplane movie. It's What's an air, the tag It line? could be an airplane. I don't know. I'm looking at the um, you should. I would uh, going back to the early, early conversation, I was I would say though that if I had not been I went uh, I went to I went to Europe to to direct something, and when I came back, I had like that long ass period on a plane where you just have to watch movies, mm-hmm. the bad movies. Yes, yeah. And I put in thinking it was going to be bad, and I totally like like it. I actually watched it last month. Definitely, maybe with Ryan Reynolds. Mm, right. <laughs> oh my. What a piece of smaltz that I loved. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a nice little movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I like to do on planes? I don't. I rarely like rent the films and I'll, I'll usually be reading a book or something. I'm sometimes I bring a film on my computer, but I, I find myself watching films that other people are watching, but I can't hear the um, audio for it. <laughs> and you watch so it through like the cracks in the, I watch the, it through the cracks window, or in the yeah. next seat. And what I like to do is watch the film. And it, hopefully it's a film I haven't seen before that I don't really want to see and see if I can understand the plot of the film mm. with no sound, because I think you, you know, you learn so much from a movie Visually, and if if the filmmaker is able to tell the story completely visually, and I watch people talking, and I have no idea what they're saying, but I'm I'm just feeling their emotions and trying yeah. to understand. There's conflict in this scene. What's this about? And if I can really get the film, I feel that I can say that that's a successful film, yeah. and it was well directed. It's a good benchmark for acting too. Absolutely, yeah, same thing. I mean, I just think you. It's a, it's a fun little you know thing I like to do on a plane that's more entertaining to me than watching the actual movie (laughs) okay so what is the tagline for Bomb Cyclone who who here has the best um, trailer voice not me she's the thespian (laughs) Oh man, what's the tagline? But she's the thespian. I, I'm the uh, thespian. If, if you have any gravel in your voice, like the action ones, that'd be great. <sighs> All right, do you do uh, a good get down here. The ultimate storm for the perfect heist. 
How was that? It was pretty good. That today. sounds like two taglines smashed together. <laughs> yeah. it? It the because there's the perfect highs and then there's the, the ultimate perfect highs. High. They, should, they it, couldn't say the perfect storm for the ultimate oh, yeah, highs because that's already been used. So it had to be the <laughs> ultimate highs for the perfect storm. Wait, what? It's the ultimate storm oh, for the good. perfect highs. So I guess that means that they are using the hurricane as a cover. Yeah, there's armed heights. mercenaries. I saw that. For their hurricane heights. Um, this one uh, I've, got one. I've got one. <laughs> Ready? This summer, hurricane season comes early. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to want to shoot in Florida because they up the percentage back during, yeah. during summer hurricanes shooting. You get like an additional 4 or 5% in Florida if you shoot there during hurricane season. Really cinematic. Really cinematic. <laughs> really cinematic. Maybe they did that. Maybe they were like, hey, man, I heard you get more money back if you shoot in Florida during hurricane season. <laughs> what can we do in Florida during hurricane I got it. Got the script for a bank heist. I got the script so. for a bank heist. And I've got, now I've got the perfect backdrop. <laughs> Geekscape is, we are going to bring you the review of Hurricane Heist in a, in a future Geekscape. Hurricane Heist 2. This time it's personal. <laughs> Man, that movie was quite the whirlwind. You see, when, they, when, they, when, they, when they feed the when they feed the people coming out of the theater lines to say in the yeah, ad yeah. for the movie. Oh, it's so good. Or my favorite, my favorite line from Young Guns. Reap the whirlwind, Murphy. Uh, I love freaking young guns. Category five fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That's great. us. I do not think there will be advanced screeners for Hurricane Heist, <laughs> uh, but I did get an advanced screener for uh, this one, Midnighters, and I can only recommend it to you. Uh, it's on VOD and demand digital and in theaters right now. Um, there's a website for it. Uh, midnightersfilm.com if you guys go to midnightersfilm.com you can see where it's screening hopefully it's screening near you it is totally advantageous and worth it uh, for an indie filmmaker to have that movie seen in theaters Uh, I think this movie would definitely work in theaters Uh, you should probably take your friends and see it and uh, it it really really helps um, Allison and Julius and Alex if you guys see this movie in theaters if it's not playing near you though you've got it on demand definitely check it out um, what's next, friends? You working on that next one? Yeah, got a couple other projects. Uh, if it's called Daybreakers, I'm gonna be so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's called a Cyclone Heist. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. called. It's called. It's called. Uh, I was thinking earthquake something. <laughs> like yeah. let's do it during the earthquake. Yeah. Uh, t- some uh, sci- a sci-fi thriller that I'm working on, and um, uh, I have two television shows that I'm developing. Perfect. Yeah. Is your brother being involved in any of it? He's uh, involved in some of them. Okay. But like this one was, they really tested the metal of the relationship. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. You don't like, <laughs> at this point, you don't want to look up and already see the stuff on air with, <laughs> like, wait a minute, you already made the show? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Also, that's not how things work out here. <laughs> Geekscapist, things don't work out here is what we've learned. Uh, and Alice, where can the Geeks Cables check you out? You guys, I'm guessing you guys are all on Twitter and Instagram and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, mostly on Instagram. I'm getting better at tweeting, but not very good. Mm-hmm. So, but it, this, it's just at Alex Esso. It's the same thing across all the all the platforms. So. Okay, and you guys are on Instagram and all that as well, right? I am, and I'd like to give a, a shout out to the um, Nigerian hackers who are sitting on Julius Ramsey. Um, they <laughs> took my name an, a number of years ago, and I've never tweeted or Instagrammed or anything. So I'm Julius Ramsey four. That's with an A Y. 
Oh man, the first three the weren't even taken. For the, for the yeah, number, yeah. Roman <laughs> Julius yeah. Ramsey four, and maybe it'll be like what Twitter did when they purged all of the bots. I'm hoping. Did you I'm see hoping. that when Twitter? No, I didn't know. Twitter purged a ton of like the fake accounts. Oh, I remember that. And, and everyone lost a bunch. Many of, of them were. Russian bots. So you showed up one morning. <laughs> you and, mean American voters? And a lot of the <laughs> and a lot of the conservative profiles were upset that their like counts had gone down. Right, and they were like, "Wait a minute, it's conspiracy. They're being, you know, our our rights are being violated. It's an attack. It's an attack." And uh, you just find out that like colon space 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 freedom for all wasn't a real person. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) I'm pretty skeptical of anybody on Twitter who has an American flag just in their profile name. I'm like, yeah, that person's, that person's protesting a bit too much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, How about yourself? I've got, I think, four feature scripts and two TV pilots that I've done the last few years that I've been... um, (laughs) Last four weeks. (laughs) Right, that I've just been sitting on waiting to and, and working to finish this film right. so um, there's go. one that's a, a TV series that I just finished the Bible on that's uh, got sort of some dark political sub themes that leverages a bit of my background in DC speech writing it's not like a DC show or anything but that's the one that I'm probably gonna hey you know what uh, it works um, I mean that was the background of uh, the guy who wrote um, oh man Geekscapes, I'm sorry that I'm blinking, but uh, the Kevin Spacey show, uh, show that was on Netflix. House of Cards. House of Cards. Like he, he started in Hollywood. Bill, or he, Bill, he, Bill started as a... He was actually a playwright. A playwright. He did he a wrote, play, and yeah. that was for um, the um, Ides of March. He wrote that as a play, and then it was made into The a George film. Clooney movie, mm-hmm. and they called up and were like, hey, you interested in having immediately 26 episodes of television right. greenlit? It's like, what? Yeah. Um, I remember watching him talk and just being like, Wow. That's a bit of a whirlwind, mm-hmm. but um, can we follow you on Austin? Can we follow you on Instagram and all that? I'm on Facebook. I don't That'll have work. the other ones, but I need to get an Instagram account so probably soon. And and I hope that the the Nigerian hackers don't steal that since they just heard it. That I'm we are here to you know. <laughs> uh, so Geekscapists, the movie's called Midnighters. Go to midnightersfilm.com. Find out where it's screening near you. Find it on demand. We're Geekscape. We're on Geekscape. Uh, forever on Instagram or geekscape.net on Instagram. Uh, that one's mine. And you can find me on at Jonathan London on Twitter. We have Geekscape Forever. That is our group on Facebook. So go on Facebook. You can join our page, which is Geekscape, or you can join our group, which is Geekscape Forever, and talk to the fellow Geekscapists. I love that you guys see this show as a community show, first and foremost. And uh, and I love uh, celebrating the community, especially you guys in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, go out, share the show with your friends. Join the, uh, just spread the community, spread the love. Geekscape forever. It's been here for over a decade. I will continue doing the show for you guys. I love you so much. Leave a review, and that really helps us out a lot. And go see midnightersfilm.com. Go see this movie in theaters or on VOD. It's really, really uh, especially for you filmmakers out there. Like, I think it's a really carefully crafted movie and I think you'll get a lot out of it. Thank, Thank you. you so much for Thanks having so us. It's a real pleasure. We're huge Geek us. Tips fans. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks guys. Uh, love you. And uh, we will see you guys next time. You couldn't hear me wave, but I was waving. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>